0: Coming up in this podcast, 40 Under 40, EPA Carbon Shift, Biotech, KPMG and Ferrier-Hodgson, Optus Stadium, Remuneration and our special report on oil and gas.
1: Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Panel and Mark Buyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and
0: welcome Mark Buyer. So Mark, we had our big 40 under 40 awards night during the week. What was your take on our night of nights?
1: Very enjoyable. So look, about 750 people at Optus Stadium. They're in the Riverview room. Uh, pre-drinks out on the balcony, overlooking the stadium itself. Uh, very enjoyable. Um, some really good uh, selection of VIPs there. Uh we had the treasurer, Ben Wyatt, uh, Mike Nahan came along and a lot of our alumni were there, former winners like uh, Rally Finlayson, Bill Beament, Gemma Green, uh, Manny Papadoulos, uh so... Gray yep. Warburton, yep. Gray Warburton, yep. And, uh, and leading up, of course, to the announcement of the 40 winners. I mean, we had, what, 104 nominations this year, and as Chief Judge, um, hard work going through them all. There were lots of uh, very worthy people there um, but we had to cut it down to 40 so hard work for the 14 judges Um, and then of course the big announcement for the first amongst equals and that was someone that a lot of people probably won't know her name but a great story um, Hannah Mann runs a business called Kimberley Pharmacy Services Um, so she went up to Broome when she was a final year pharmacy student to do her placement and loved the place but also spotted this amazing opportunity where the way in which pharmacy services are delivered in remote communities, um, Chief Town was just not very well done. So yeah. she's really... Sort of Trying really
0: to fit the metropolitan model into the, into a very, very regional part of regional WA.
1: That's right. So she's sort of reinvented the pharmacy business um, as it applies in that location. Um, got a very successful business now, um, operating in the major towns in the Kimberley, but also Got a network that goes through all of the uh, remote Aboriginal communities.
0: Yeah, my take on it was she's kind of, she's got that traditional business, and even though yeah, I think it's, it's three, she's got three outlets up there, um, which even those aren't traditional chemist shops by any means, from from what I understand. But then in in the background, she's got this effectively a logistics business that you know provides all sorts of materials through the through the region, as well as this sort of service providing business that then direct services into the region as well.
1: Mm. Is that right? And I think tied in with that, it's almost an educational role. She said one of the issues was that a lot of people are given a prescription but they don't really know what they're being given, they don't sort of really know how to use it properly Mm. Um, and this is particularly a case in in remote Aboriginal communities. So they spend a lot of time working with the people to ensure that what they are prescribed is actually taken properly and, and has the desired effect so there's sort of a mix of hard-nosed commercial business with achieving some some social good but the two are blended in the way that sort of is it's almost mutually reinforcing
0: yeah and she's you know she's obviously under 40 but she is a young person and she's on the board of the the uh, pharmaceutical the the, the government the pharmacy guild i think yeah Yep. So nationally, which is a, which is a... And a does
1: lecturing at university as well. Yeah. So a real dynamo. Yeah. And, and look, a, she
0: was up against some stiff competition there, I think, Mark. There was some fabulous other winners.
1: Yeah. Before. I mean, look, some of the other people that were shortlisted for that First Amongst Equals award, uh, Tim Topham, um, he's built up Top Drill. So that's a very successful drilling company out of Kalgoorlie. Now, Tim's a he was a Kiwi. Came to WA with nothing. He was on his way to London as a backpacker. um, Spotted an opportunity and didn't start with any money, but just a hard-working guy. Um, You know, slipped in a container in his yard up in Kalgoorlie in the early days uh, with his wife. Um, But now got a very substantial (laughs) business, uh, contracts with the likes of Northern Star Resources and going up to the Pilbara. So, you know, top drill, great story. Uh, Joshua Beaver he's got a manufacturing business um, focused particularly on slurry pipelines so he's got aspirations of changing the way in which a lot of bulk ores are transported so yeah getting them mean, out of trains and into slurry pipelines
0: do you think that in WA the, the the length of the trains and the size of them and he wants to change that yeah. to make that to make it all go in a pipe
1: yeah and then um, Alicia Curtis um, She's very well-known in philanthropic circles, Um, got together a group called 100 Women, uh, a giving circle, but also runs her own consulting business. Uh, You know, really inspiring story from her as well. Um, And that's just a handful of them. So all the write-ups are on the website um, and in the next edition of Business News. So very enjoyable night and uh, great feedback from all the people that were there.
0: Yeah, and if you happen to listen to this podcast... uh before, I think it's 11 o'clock Friday night, then uh, you can actually get free access to our website should you uh, not be a subscriber. But of course, we encourage you to subscribe and get full access to our website. Um, Now, back to a more challenging subject, Mark. Uh, The Environmental Protection Authority's position on carbon emissions has, uh, well, it's changed rather dramatically over the past week.
1: Now, we discussed this a week ago, and at that point in time, Uh, The Premier, Mark McGowan, had tried to knock this issue on the head. Um, The EPA came out last Thursday, a bit over a week ago, and said that all major new projects had to fully offset their carbon emissions. And this um, came as a real shock to the likes of Woodside and many other big organisations who um, had not anticipated this change and uh, were quite taken aback by the significance of it. The Premier said last week that he didn't support what the EPA was saying, but that wasn't enough to really deal with the issue because it's almost yes, minister, but governments and ministers come and go, but these regulatory agencies are still there. And if this was maintained as policy, there was a real concern that it would still have an impact on future projects under future governments. Yeah. Um, there was concern that it might be similar to what happens in Queensland, where the Adani coal project, um, there's been legal challenges to that because people have drawn on similar policy pronouncements by agencies in Queensland. So it culminated on Thursday when the Premier got together with uh, folks from Chevron, Shell, Woodside, you know, some of the big players, and he had a word to Tom Hatton, who chairs the EPA, and uh, he responded by saying that they were withdrawing the guidelines and would have further consultation with industry. So um, a big step back from what the EPA had proposed. Yeah. Um, and look, classic case of uncertainty is a major deterrent to investment. And you know, Woodside, as we'll discuss later on, Woodside in particular has some very big projects in the works and this is the last thing they needed. Yeah. Um, really interesting. Uh, Peter Coleman, CEO at Woodside, is normally a very measured person. Uh, he got really fired up about this. You saw the how strongly he spoke about it. Um, very unusual and sort of says a lot about how how much significance he attached to this issue.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, quite remarkable and uh, and, and I guess all the more... Uh, prominent given there's AOG the big conference Australian Oil and Gas uh, happening in in Perth right now and uh, you know all those leaders were if they're not already in Perth generally (laughs) were definitely in Perth this week so uh, yeah quite a moment Um, and look you know I think it's just there's this real uh, disconnect from people understanding both what resources is all about and, and, um, and some of that stuff like carbon emissions. I mean, LNG is a positive for carbon emissions globally. Yeah, sure, it, it takes some carbon emissions to create LNG, but, but gas is, uses a, or produces way less carbon than coal, for instance. So, you know, it's meant to be a transition fuel. Uh, why would you go making it hard to, to do that? Um, and look, lots of other stuff which we can talk about later around that. Um, now, Mark, a uh, big new
1: biotech
0: player has emerged in WA.
1: Some really positive news on Friday, uh, Respirion Pharmaceuticals is a new biotech company. Uh, it's a spin out from a telethon kids institute. Uh, there's a great backstory to this but also some very significant investment behind it, um, which is a real milestone and it fits into this narrative around you know, the aspiration of building up other industries beyond the resources sector. Hmm. And biotech and life sciences have often been seen as um, an area where we could do a lot more in WA. We've got a very strong uh, research base, uh, lots of research institutes here. Um, And this is a good story about something with big commercial potential. So the person behind it is Barry Clements. Uh, Now, he's a doctor who works in the field um, of cystic fibrosis. um, And he's seen shortcomings in the way in which current drugs treat the disease. He got together about five years ago with Kath Giles, a 40 Under 40 winner, who um, works for a group called Brandon Capital. And essentially, they spent the past five years, um, if you like, incubating this idea um, and taking it from a concept to where there's now a company with some serious backing. Mm. There's a group in the US called the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Uh, They've committed US $3 million to it, um, as well as a lot of research support and clinical testing support. Uh, Plus, there's an organisation in Australia, the Biomedical Translation Fund, so it's a mix of government and private money. They've committed $20 million. Right, okay. Put those two together, that's one of, if not the biggest investment I've ever seen in a biotech in Western Australia. Yeah. Um, Certainly an unlisted company um, at a fairly early stage of its development. So um, bottom line, you know, they've had some really good strides in their early clinical testing for this new treatment for cystic fibrosis. Um, and they've got people who've signed the checks and said, we like what you're doing, and uh, we're gonna support you. So Fantastic. really encouraging.
0: And I love the 40 under 40 link there, Mark, very, uh, yep. very well, timely. Well, in fact,
1: and the CEO, incoming CEO is Matt Callahan. Right. He's a, a well-known biotech executive in Perth, currently based in the US. Um, which is where some of the testing will happen he's another 40 under 40 winner There you go Uh, just
0: keeps on coming Um, Now Mark, big news during the week uh, with accounting and professional services major KPMG and insolvency leader Ferrier Hodgson joining forces
1: Yep, this is the second transaction of this type that we've seen Uh, June last year uh, PWC linked up with PPB Um, So look Two more examples of a broader theme around the big accounting firms getting larger, getting more diversified, you know, they, they are into all sorts of things beyond what we think of their, as their traditional accounting business, all sorts of consulting practices. Now this one um, has quite a strong Perth connection as well. So Matt Woods, who's recently come in as chairman of KPMG in WA, yep. um, he heads their national restructuring practice. Um, and he will continue in that role, um, under, you know, heading up what will be a much larger restructuring group. They'll have about 27 partners around the country in that field. Um, in WA, um, based on our numbers from our BNIQ database, uh, the combined KPMG, Ferrier Hodgson will be number one player in the WA market. All oh, right. In, so it puts them up against... In insolvency? In insolvency. Or, yeah, gotcha. People like Cordamentha and FTI, um, they'll sort of jump ahead of them. Okay. So a bit of a, a significant sort of shifting of the market. Um, um, forgive me, uh, Ferrier's always
0: had a pretty strong base here, didn't they? Uh, the, yes. But it didn't start here, but I think they had some very early, early partners here. Is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Look, they're, they're a national group, um, but always had a very strong practice in Western Australia mm. um, and had some of the really interesting insolvencies over the years. Yeah, right.
0: Sorry. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? And we've talked about, I mean, there's been loads of these kind of add-ons to the large accounting firms. And and I guess, uh, you know, when you talk to a lot of accountants, the the, the, big, the kind of underlying thing that's going on there now is this, this sort of concern or shift around audit, which is a traditional occupation of accounting firms. But there's a lot of conflict in being an auditor and having all these other services. And when all the money is in the other services... It gets a bit testy when you when you've got the audit as a it's a bread and butter business, but it also gets a bit in the way. So I think there's a lot of moves now internationally, isn't there, to sort of separate audit as it to be a separate company or some sort of different responsibility. Um, and I guess that makes some sense when you see what's happened. Maybe and I, you know I don't want to allude to some of the dramas in the banking sector being necessarily in professional services, but you know you can see that problem when you start to you know horizontally integrate into a whole bunch of other fields like the bankers did, it's got them in trouble outside of their core business. So I I think we might see the the accountants realising that, especially in Australia, that perhaps they need to, you know, separate some of those fields too. Do you think?
1: Well, I think it's also cyclical. I mean, even in insolvency. Yes. Yeah. They all came out of it. The big accounting firms, you know, used to do it. They all split out as independent firms. Now they're being bought back again. Yeah. So I guess people's sort of thinking evolves over time and, and the way in which they deal with those issues evolves over time as well. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Um,
0: and uh, Mark, you know, it could have been a bit of a footnote, I think, in terms of news, a major fund manager investing in, well, you know, a, a, a bit of infrastructure, but uh, AMP has ended up owning half of Optus Stadium, the new
1: yeah. Optus Stadium. Yeah, look, um, this, this is one of those transactions that gives you an insight into the funding behind a lot of the infrastructure around Western Australia. So uh, there was a company called West Stadium. That was the private investor that funded the development of Optus Stadium. Um, And there were two groups that, you know, unknown to the average punter, um, a UK group called John Lang and Aberdeen Asset Management. Mm. They were the two equity investors in that business. Um, AMP Capital has now Bought out John Lang's stake in that. Um, so, effectively, yeah, they'll, they'll be the half owner of West Stadium, which was the developer of the stadium. Yep. Um, but one of several examples where, so, AMP also owns the Kalgoorlie Regional Prison. I'm sure a lot of people may not have that. Realise that. <laughs> they also own half of the Port Hedland Airport yeah, right. that was privatised by the. Uh, City of Port Hedland a number of years ago. Um, There's a whole bunch of other things around Perth. You know, there's a big water plant that was built up at Mundaring a few years ago, public-private partnership. Um, There's a whole bunch of schools being built in Perth at the moment as a public-private partnership. Now, these are deals that were done primarily under the Barnett government. Troy Buswell was a big supporter of these PPPs. Um, And it's a, a really good example, or they're all good examples, I think, of... If you'd structure the deal properly, there's a lot of private money out there that can fund development of infrastructure. So it's not just the taxpayers that have to foot the bill up front for these developments. There are other ways of funding these sorts of um, um, infrastructure assets. Um, The other example I love to remind people of, the district court building Mm. on Hay Street, it's owned by private investors. They funded it and built it, and they've got a long-term concession from the government. And the other example I'll mention briefly, um, of a fair bit of interest in this story from our readers, there's a big new waste plant being built down at Kwinana. Um Now, it's Macquarie Capital and the Dutch Infrastructure Fund who are spending about $700 million hmm. building a plant that is going to process a lot of waste, about 400,000 tonnes, that currently goes to landfill. Yeah, right. So this was after doing a deal with a bunch of local councils who currently, you know, put it in a truck and send it down to landfill. Um, Very old-fashioned way of dealing with it. Um, There's, in fact, a second waste-to-energy plant um, in the works. A local company called New Energy Corporation, chaired by Enzo Galotti. They've got some international partners, and they're planning to build another plant of similar scale. So some great stories there Mm. about private money delivering Uh, public infrastructure around WA.
0: Yeah, no, no, fabulous and and, and, uh, a a, a great um, synopsis there, mate. Really appreciate it. Uh, Mark, we did a, uh, in in conjunction with BDO, we launched the uh, third iteration of the uh, BDO REM report during the week. Um, What can we tell our readers there?
1: Yeah, so... Sorry, our listeners. Our (laughs) listeners, yes. Um, So, look, the folks at BDO have sort of done a a deep dive into remuneration trends for listed companies Um, and there's a detailed report that people will be able to get through our website. There's a a remuneration tab on the homepage um, and that will be going up next week uh, where people can get the report. So we had a launch event um, and I had a good chat to some of the executive search consultants in town. So Colin Simpson from Hadric and Struggles, um, Alison Gaines at Gerard Daniels and Sally Langer at Derwent, and had a really interesting chat to them about you know what they're seeing in the market. Um, some of the thi- they all see a real tightening in the market for executive talent. Mm. Uh, there's this, you know, a healthy pickup particularly in mining activity in WA. Um, keen demand for for good quality experienced executives, um, and yet there's a there's a finite supply of people that fit the bill, yeah, good. Um, and they're seeing more and more pressure, and they suspect that's going to start flowing through into remuneration yeah. um, as those supply-demand pressures come through. Um, Alison Gaines also pointed to what she saw as a almost a structural shift, because she said in previous downturns, a lot of people that had been in the mining industry left the industry and haven't come back. So there's sort of a, a, a tranche of people that should be in their late 30s, early 40s, who are going to be the next group of CEOs coming through mm. or senior executives? She said they're not there; they've yeah. given up on the industry. And there's also questions around if, like, the branding of the mining industry—you know—is it the kind of industry where young people want to work? And that ties into very low enrolments at places like the School of Mines up at Kalgoorlie. Yeah, um, so all,
0: all timing it wrong cyclically. And um, I thought also the the commentary around the way incentives operate and how you know uh, those who've been in the the, sort of the older generation have typically done pretty well out of long-term incentives so they're more interested in that whereas the younger ones coming through have no experience of that they want you know and they've obviously got other needs generally they've got younger families and need their money now and that sort of thing so they're they're less uh interested in having those longer-term incentives and don't really maybe understand the
1: cyclical nature of mining and the opportunity there Yeah, Sally Langer was talking about the fact that you might have a a pool of shortlisted candidates for one job and their salary expectations can be very different because their risk appetite is Mm. very different. As you say, an older person who's who's made a bit of money, um, they might be happy with a lower base salary, but they'll see some big upside from getting um, share options or some other long-term incentive, whereas a younger person, They'll say, well, look, you know, I've got my kids at school and I've got my mortgage and I want a higher base salary and I'm not sure about these long-term incentives. You know, for a lot of people over the past few years who've been sitting on or had a long-term incentive scheme, they've delivered zip because the market's been so weak. Um, But if you've got the risk appetite and the long view, you know, you can get the big payoff.
0: No, totally. Um, And and also just uh, before we move on, I think... uh, Keith Spence also spoke, uh, he's chairman of Santos. I thought he spoke really well. And I I thought some of his insights were fantastic and I really enjoyed the discussion that he talked about from, especially in a big company, the amount of effort and energy that goes in at the remuneration committee level to get remuneration right because, and he says you need experts in there, people who know the field, as in know the industry you're in really well, to align that long and short term incentives with what you really want to achieve, because he said, you know, the shareholders have a very different, you know, take on things sometimes, and and you need to be able to actually explain really carefully to shareholders so they understand, otherwise you get all this activism that upsets the apple cart, and sometimes, you know, wrecks a pretty good plan by the sounds of things.
1: Yeah, Yeah. no, that was a great discussion.
0: All right, Mark, uh, our special report is on oil and gas, which we've already mentioned a bit Um, earlier on. Matt McKenzie has examined a host of projects worth,
1: I don't know, a lot of billions. That's right, yes. Uh, Look, um, people who are familiar with our BNIQ database, which we love talking about, will know that there's a a projects database on there under one of the tabs. And that includes a lot of oil and gas projects that Matt has updated. So at the moment, um, he's got a list of about 18 developments that are either just getting underway, or likely to get underway, collectively worth $60 billion. Yeah. So we're talking very serious money here, and Woodside is sort of the, the number one organisation driving this. Uh, their big projects, there's the Browse Gas Project, about developing those gas fields off the Kimberley Coast and bringing it down to the existing uh, Northwest Shelf Gas Plant on the Burrock Peninsula. Also, the big Scarborough development um, that would tie back into an expansion of the Pluto LNG plant. Um, so those projects together account for more than half that total capex. Uh, but look, you know, Chevron has got some big developments. Uh, Shell, um, ConocoPhillips. Um, there's a whole range of big offshore gas developments um, and some onshore action as well. So uh, people will remember Mitsui bought the. Uh, Waitzier gas field in mm-hmm. the Perth Basin. Uh, there was sort of a hot takeover battle for that. So Mitsui's been quietly working away behind the scenes, but we anticipate they'll press the button at some point on further development at Mitsui. Uh, sorry, at Waitzier. So um, look, a really good detailed analysis here, some great tables in our report yep. so people can see exactly who's looking to spend money where. Um, and also, a lot of detail about who the contractors are and the engineers, and, and who's winning the work. So.
0: And Brian, and look, a little, uh, you know, I've mentioned uh, AOG, I've been down there during the week, um, just a couple of take, you know, in conjunction with our oil and gas feature, I think it's kind of a nice segue, uh, just some interesting little takeaways. Big words out there, collaboration, which I always love. So, you know, it's obviously a bit of a theme in the oil and gas industry. Um, a theme I really notice talking to people um, that, you know, they're definitely saying things are picking up. They're definitely more positive. It's definitely, you know, people are seeing activity. And, you know, that goes back to our remuneration discussion as well. There's demand for people. There's demand. There's work happening. Um, and a really interesting thing that I find fascinating about um, about Perth is when I'm talking around with people there at AOG, a lot of them have worked in the mining industry. You know, there's a real cross-fertilisation over the last 10 to 15 years in WA um, as the oil and gas industry has taken off here. We're unique. We have a... There's no other place that's a mining and oil and gas capital, operational capital, anywhere in the world. And uh, and those two industries have quite a lot in common in many, many areas. So I had a great chat with... Uh, a geologist yesterday who's ended up being a geophysicist and you know the cross and you know that that's where she she'd started her career in mining but ended up in oil and gas and switching backwards and forwards but you know she says actually she found geophysics way more interesting and uh and and she said that's helped her survive the last few years where it's been difficult
1: and a lot of the contractors in town as well absolutely cross over those Doing two both. fields yeah, yeah yeah totally
0: totally right and last little observation uh, you know i got a press release from uh, from a a student organisation about their their activism and, and protesting out at uh, at AOG, and I'm thinking to myself, well, that's nice, isn't it? A bunch of people protesting about oil and gas, and I'm thinking, how many of their colleagues at university? Way more, I would think, than this very small hand handful of people who are actually looking for jobs. And here, here's a, you know, we want we want jobs that you know require real intellect, and you know, the jobs of the future. And uh, here you've got a bunch of people protesting. As I previously mentioned, oil and gas is part of the future, not, not, not the old ways. And you know what? Even if we took all of our energy from renewables, we're still going to need oil. We still need to create plastics and paints and all the things we use in everyday life. I just find it remarkable that the, there's a, some people just don't get that. I find it even more disturbing when they're university students. <laughs> anyway, thanks Mark. Uh, just a quick one, obviously we mentioned our remuneration uh, launch during the week. Uh, there will be a remuneration report available um, and you'll get all the information by going to our website and looking at for the remuneration tab. Um, also, a reminder, our new Business News app is available for download from our website. The app provides a streamlined version of our site and the same access as your subscription level, it's a fast and convenient way to check our news and database while you're on the go. Um, it's available for Android and iPhone and just go to businessnews.com.au slash app. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.